Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to Ask the Experts, brought to you by the Real Estate Forums. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National, as well as being co-host of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our expert today is Andrew Joyner. Managing Director, Tricon Residential, and Head of the Canadian Apartment Platform. Andrew is tasked with the, I'm sure, difficult and rewarding job of trying to create thousands of brand new apartment units throughout the GTA. So he's here to talk to us today about pain points, winning points, you know, how it's getting done. And the part that really gets Aaron and I excited is uh, we're also going to take a finance lens to this, how you're financing this to make these projects viable. So of course, that is uh, right in the sweet spot for Aaron and me. But first, Andrew, we want to welcome you today. Thanks very much, Adam. Nice to join you and Aaron again. It's been a while since we did our last podcast, I guess, which was pre-COVID. And I've uh, your podcasts have been key to getting me through the last two years. They've been a substitute for conversations with people. This is the, the possibly the best opening we've ever had. I'm you know, always happy to receive uh, praise for the podcast. And we'll take this opportunity, of course, if you want to go back and hear uh, Andrew's, I guess it'd be a dated view at this point, but his view at the time. Uh, that is, of course, available uh, to listen to. But we're going to talk about here and today, you know, November 2021, the uh, the State of the Union for Building Apartments. But just to set the stage for the conversation, can you run us through, you know, your background and you know, how you got to, to be where you are today running, you know, the Tricon apartment platform? Instead of going through sort of arc, I mean, I, I might focus on one thing, which is how it all started and, and, and that ultimately, you know, giving praise to someone who helped me get started. It's funny, when I was in undergrad at, at, in university, I knew I wanted to get into real estate, unlike a lot of people who grew up in real estate families. For me, you know, it always seemed like the natural combination of business, finance, sort of design and urbanization. And that always intrigued me. When I was a second or third year student, I sent a cold call email to Blake Hutchison, who was at the time the president and CEO of, uh, of CBRE Canada. And uh, you know, the phone rang and it was a landline at the time uh, at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning. And I'd probably been out the night before and was a little bit shell-shocked when the phone rang. Went and picked it up and uh, you know, Blake was on the other line and uh, he was kind enough to have a conversation with me and invite me to Toronto to come meet with him. And uh, ultimately, I uh, started at the very bottom in the research department at, at CBRE for the summer, supporting various initiatives uh, around the office. But that really you know, was the first sort of real estate checkmark on my resume that you know, ultimately helped, helped me get my start. So I mentioned that because I'm you know, eternally grateful to, to Blake for doing that. And I think it's, you know, we all grew up in the industry. I think the more we can uh, you know, pay it forward by helping out young people in particular you know, in this tough COVID job market is, uh, is, is something that uh, we should all be doing. That's quite the, the epic uh, cold call. You know, a, a pretty good percentage of our viewers today probably have a background in cold calling. So you got to respect getting uh, Blake Hutchison to, to call you back and, <laughs> and set, up, set you up on your career. Exactly. That's, yeah, no, I, I, that's a good way to set the stage. I, I do like it. So then let's talk about now. Let's talk about Tricon. Uh, you know, I, I assume that uh, most people paying any attention to the sector you know, likely know who you are. But let's go at a high level what you have on the go right now so people understand the scope of the the Canadian apartment platform. You know, as much as Adam and I like to avoid it, COVID is still the driving narrative of so much of this stuff. And as you talked about, sort of the occupational unknowns of just where we go, I think there's a ton of employers looking to bring employees back downtown or back to their offices, wherever they may be in the new year. But again, we're still 
whatever it is, six to eight weeks away from there. And who knows what will transpire between now and then. It's, it's really a day-to-day decision-making exercise. And maybe the answer is COVID to this next question, but hopefully it's not. Like, what are the things that keep you busiest? That I don't. I did. I was thinking this question through in my mind. I I, I kind of just wanted to ask, like, what's your day to day like? But I wonder if an interesting twist is, what are the things you do on your day to day that you wish you didn't have to? So I wish I didn't have to get on calls while I'm dropping my kids off on the way to school. That's not ideal. I feel like they're uh, they're going to be able to talk uh, in detail about you know our industry by age ten at this rate, but um, you know look I think a little bit of everything and I think that's what's really fun and sort of um, addictive about this business you know I kind of t- talked a little bit earlier about that sort of three categories of kind of buy build operate. And uh, in the context of your question of what's getting easier and harder, and I think it's all of those categories on a, on a daily basis, and then managing the team is an additional one. I think a third of my time every day is probably spent on you know looking at new opportunities, speaking to partners, consultants, looking at different opportunities and how to be creative and and help unlock those. You know, a lot of it spent sitting down with our development team, thinking of and our operations team, thinking about you know the full lifecycle approach to design. What's going to make sense for the resident experience? What other industries, from hospitality to retail to best practices we see in the U.S., can be importing into our business in terms of you know suite design, lobbies, amenities, you know energy efficiency, you know what's going on in terms of technology, which mobile app we're happy with, should we be upgrading it? Why? And, and then, you know, also talking about resident experience, you know, there's a quote I like to say that, uh, you know, the amenities arms race is, is largely over. I think our own surveys and, you know, the broad industry surveys will tell you exactly what residents value most. And I think it's then about how you deliver those better than your competitors, whether it's thinking about concierge partnerships or gym partnerships or F&B delivery partnerships, you know, just, just trying to gain an edge. And I think, we're really thoughtful about constantly innovating and you know our team is and that creates a lot of dialogue and engagement but no two days are the same and uh, the thing I've realized and um, you know my EA has been a great partner in this is you know you've really in particular during COVID with just the barrage of, of Zoom meetings that can easily just get thrown into your calendar you've got to find windows to sort of think and, and try to reflect and, and be strategic because the days just rip by. Yeah, I can relate. You hate to have those days where it feels like it was either all defense or, or all reaction. You got to do things with purpose. Otherwise, you just get lost in the drift of real estate. You mentioned, I think it was buy, build, operate as a three-word summary of you know what you do for a living. But your breakdown within those categories, you're, you're heavier in, in the buy side. You know, you've got, I think, one building fully operational, fully leased. The Selby, which is a very large project downtown. And actually, since you mentioned amenities as well, we've referred to the Selby numerous times as a real benchmark for amenity offerings for tenants. That's not what I want to talk to you about now. On the build side, you have a number of sites uh, underway, but I want to talk about buy right now. You did allude to the fact that it's tough to buy, but you're also, as Tricon, have managed to buy a lot of a lot of sites in a short period of time, very large sites. So you know, I guess you've got that part somewhat solved. But when you're looking at sites now, uh, you're underwriting sites, especially the context of an intense condo market. How are you making pro formas work? How have those evolved over time? And what do you do about you know the issue of condo pricing just continuing to escalate and allowing your competitors, being you know, condo buyers for a lot of these sites, to you know have a little more firepower on their pro formas and apartment pro forma? Yeah, you know, look, I got to be a pinch guarded on that, but I think the first thing. For rental developers, you know, in terms of locations, 
you know, ultimately we tend to focus, you know, in the downtown core, it's where we have scale, it's where we have critical mass, which, you know, is important on the development and operation side. You know, I think that said, like, if we're going to go, you know, look at a prime zone site on Young Street, that's just always going to be tough. We're bringing a bit of a, a knife to a gunfight with a rental business plan. And so notwithstanding, we've been successful buying a zone site on Young Street. You know, I think by and large, we're looking for areas that have great fundamentals, strong long-term tailwinds, transit-oriented, and for whatever reason, you know, aren't quite mature yet. And a good example of that is, you know, the first asset we bought at at Bloor and Sherborne. You know, at the time, we bought a a, a site from a failed condo launch and picked up a, a great site for, you know, close to 75 bucks a foot. And, you know, two years later, people were buying sites in that area at a 3x multiple. So, you know, we continue to try to look for geographies that have great ingredients, but aren't quite uh, right in the crosshairs of, of condo groups just yet. You know, I also think we have to look for specific sites. Parking kills you. It's highly dilutive. You know, if a site is a postage stamp and requires five levels of underground, that's just always going to be tough for us. So we've got to look at sites that are efficient and have P1 or P2. And, and again, we're not building parking stalls at $200,000 a pop that, you know, have a capitalized value of, you know, 50 to 70 grand when they're rented out. So really focusing on parking. And then, you know, how, again, how you make it work, like it's, it's really focusing on execution. You know, I keep getting into this buy, build, operate dynamic, but, you know, if you were to sit down and talk with the cost consultants that, you know, they would tell you what developers pay is almost a 20% spread. Those who, you know, have long-term trade relationships directly, those who pay people on time, those who have a, you know, scaling portfolio of work and really manage the execution process. That means not just centering out a passive, you know, RFP for an award, but going and managing your relationships, negotiating actively and trying to take an ownership view to, you know, everything you do as opposed to a passive view of, of just, you know, letting your CM just tender and see what happens. I think that's really critical for any rental developer. And then lastly, you know, again, I think to drive premium rents, which is ultimately what we're trying to do in terms of our resident value proposition, it's, you know, delivering something different. And, you know, you're right, Adam, you know, certainly I focus more on the buy build piece and we have an operations team who focuses on that element of the business, but we take a team approach to everything. And we're always trying to think about, you know, the next great idea that helps separate us from our competition. You know, can we do partnership with this sports team or this concert hall? Can we do, you know, something that's exclusive here? Can we not, you know, try to build a moat around the Tricon resident experience and, you know, offer something special in the market? Just a reminder, I mean, we will get into some conversations around financing, of course, which is sort of Adam and my favorite topic. But I think right now I kind of like where this conversation is going. So let's keep it going. You know, Andrew, you mentioned the underwriting model based on that sort of the buy component. And I, I find there's just such a fascinating discussion about just how dynamic and reactive or responsive perhaps your underwriting models need to be at any given time. I'm going to mention inclusionary zoning. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. But I think, you know, we know it's coming. It's coming in the city of Toronto where you guys are, are very active. <laughs> Selfless plug. There's a whole commercial real estate podcast episode coming out this week on inclusionary zoning if you want to get the lowdown on, on really how that's going to impact the rental market at large, our condo or rental market, the affordability challenges in the city, which I think I, I know without even talking to Andrew about it, I know exactly what he thinks about it. Do you immediately put those types of variables into your underwriting? Like, okay, great. Inclusionary zoning is coming. I got a bid on a site next month. 
I'm delivering units in five to seven years. So immediately I know I'm going to get an extra 50 cents per square foot on a deliverable unit. Or is it, do you kind of have to be more, I don't know, it's an art, not a science. Yeah, good question. You know, look, I think inclusionary zoning is something that we broadly knew was coming. I think, as we talked about earlier, like I think some of the challenges, you know, we as an industry, those trying to build rental, I think in many ways think we're doing God's work. I think it's something that this city is structurally like massively underserved in. It's one of the mayor's signature commitments. It's part of the 2030 housing action plan. And we don't get a lot of help. We don't get any special treatment in terms of entitlements, timing, density, and, uh, you know, things like HST as a, for instance, you know, haven't been indexed since, you know, 2005. And so there's a lot of people who would like to build more rental in the city. I think the challenge is getting it to pencil and had inclusionary zoning been introduced in a way that impacted purpose-built rental in the short term, I think that would have put a couple business plans upside down and you might see some condo conversions. So, you know, we were pleased to see that purpose-built rental has a holiday till I think it's 2026, January 26th, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that'll help encourage supply, which is, you know, helping to achieve a goal that's shared by all three levels of government. You know, I think in terms of one of the other things we're still wrestling with, we're not smart enough to figure it out, is will inclusionary zoning, will that impact a condo developer's business plans? Will that result in them having to price their units even higher? And will the market absorb that in order to maintain their business plans? Or is that something that they're not going to be able to pass through and that's going to impact their ability to pay for land by, you know, 50 odd dollars? You know, it's, it's still too early. I, I think it's 2022 when uh, inclusionary zoning hits at the back end of the year. So it's still early, but it's it's something that we're monitoring closely. Yeah, I think we're all still in the, uh, the, the digest and contemplate mode rather than offering uh, you know informed opinions. But uh, yeah, it definitely, it's the top of our radar as well. This was advertised as you know, having a, a finance focus at the start. So I do kind of want to jump into it. You know, not totally self-serving because of course, that's what Aaron and I do. But we thought you'd be a good guest for this, for the very reason that you're very intense, as you said, on the, the buy-build portion of, your portfolio, and you've used a variety of different methods in order to, to finance it. Just real quick to run through it, TMHC market program, for anybody who's not familiar with that, it's, it's, it's just a government-insured construction program that is based on market rents. You've done RCFI, which is a CMHC direct lending program meant to incentivize projects with social good. You've done conventional loans, and then I guess term debt as well. You've also, of course, uh, have termed out some, some projects. but at the start, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to lead the witness, you know, when I asked uh, some, some things that have changed for the better, but, uh, you know, interest rates and finance options probably would fall under the umbrella of things that have improved since Tricon first uh, launched their platform. So can we just talk about some of your recent experience with financing, how much some of the improvement financings allow you to compete and, you know, ultimately, of course, improve your, your bottom line. Maybe we'll start with the most complex one and probably the one maybe least known to the audience, I'm assuming this is the, the RCFI program. This is CMHC offering uh, funds direct from them. And this, this program is a little unique in that there's a whole system to evaluate the social benefit of the building. And you did have a, a very large project get approved under it recently. So can you talk about some of the areas, you know, some of the features your building had that helped you qualify for this financing? 
For sure. And, you know, look, the question's clearly about RCFI, but I think it applies broadly to people thinking about, you know, the purpose-built rental space, which is, it's a yield-based business. It's buy versus build. What's that spread? You know, what's your running yield relative to financing costs? And so it's centrally important to this business and, and what we all do. I think that's pretty obvious, but I think, you know, what I'd say for those, you know, thinking about getting into this business is in order to access these programs that allow you to borrow on the more cost-effective side, you need a balance sheet and it needs to be a big fortress balance sheet. And I think that that's where people at times get tripped up with these CMHC programs. And so, as you allude to, Adam, down in the West Onlands, we're building, you know, what I think is in many ways Canada's largest and most significant residential development. It's about 2,500 units, partnership with all three levels of government, 12 acres right beside the distillery district downtown. You know, we're partnered with uh, Kilmer and Dream on that project. So back in 2018, we got an RCMHC RCFI loan for Block 8. It was about a $360 million loan. They were great to work with. It was one of the early largest loans under the RCFI program. We're able to, you know, achieve a level of proceeds and metrics, you know, generally akin to, you know, what their target program parameters are on the on the proceed side. And what was great about that, what helped us, you know, quickly and expeditiously work towards positive execution is, you know, having three multi-billion dollar company balance sheets behind it. You know, these CMHC programs in many ways are more of a corporate loan than a real estate loan, or maybe they're a corporate loan and a real estate loan. But you know, they're very much looking at the debt metrics on takeout, but they're also focused on the guarantor strength. And I think at times people don't want to spend time thinking about the importance of those guarantors, which is, you know, if you're going to borrow money under these programs, you've got to pledge dollar for dollar balance sheet on other properties. And so where Others may have met headwinds in the past, whether it was not-for-profits trying to access this space, private developers trying to access this space, or, you know, even right now, you know, phase one of housing now hasn't closed yet. We're really proud that our deals in the West Onlands closed a year before those, and we're going to be welcoming our first residents next year, whereas, you know, these other projects haven't, haven't closed. And I think these large-scale affordable housing projects, in many instances, the RCFI program plays a really central role in, in you know, making them viable, but um, not everybody has the balance sheet to access these. We were able to quickly and expeditiously and efficiently get, a, I think, what was the largest RCFI loan ever done at the time in you know, less than a year. And um, no, it was, a, it was a great experience working with you know, David Chiron and the CMHC team. We're going we're to keep walking through different asset classes or different product types from the financing side. But I think at the same time, Andrew, it's interesting just to get sort of general philosophical ideas or discussions going. When you're doing an assessment of different options, right? Like Adam mentioned off the top, you've done the RCFI program, the CMC Flexibility Affordability Program, of course, the uninsured or the standard insured, like conventional versus just regular CMHC. I mean, it's not always rate, right? Like it's not just rate. Sometimes it's proceeds. Sometimes it's guarantee structure. Sometimes it's amortization. Like what is it? I don't know. Can you prioritize those things? Like how does that work? Or is it really just a, as a situation by situation basis? Well, boy, it depends. I mean, rate and proceeds matter. I'm not going to pretend they don't. But I think what is really important, at least on my worldview in terms of lender counterparts and, and partners on the construction side is, you know, having a person that you can phone and talk to and having a partner on your lending counterpart. Development and construction, 
is you know inherently sort of capricious and, and ever changing and, and unpredictable. And maybe rents go up, and that means your HST goes up, and maybe that wasn't sized appropriately in your loan facility, or maybe. COVID hits and, you know, there's force majeure discussions. Maybe you've got a stabilized income producing property and COVID hits and no one knows what's going to happen. And I think that, you know, having a counterpart on the other side of the line that you can talk to takes a you know similar worldview to you as opposed to, you know, a broadly securitized, there's a thousand people that will hold the paper situation is something that you know, we're very focused on certainly in our development business up here. You know, I think in the U.S. we're you know more open to securitization model on you know stabilized core assets with with lower leverage. But um, yeah, I think your lender counterparty and you know having a true partner that you can you know speak to and, and work things out with is is super important. And I'll you know give you an example. I mean, during COVID, in those first few months in March April of 2020. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Everyone was watching, you know, their collections like the hawk the first month because nobody knew what the delinquency was going to look like. And you know, we had discussions with our lender who could have said, "You missed your interest payment. We're going to have, be having a discussion about EODs," uh, which, from a property management perspective, puts you in a different position and how you might need to approach working with your residents. And so we went to our lender on a handful of projects and said. Look, people are faced with a lot of uncertainty. We're in a global health pandemic. This is an act of God. We don't know what you know our April collections are going to look like. And by, I think, taking that proactive approach, having a counterparty that you can engage and have dialogue with, you know, we're pleased to hear from them that they were also focused on doing what's right for residents and you know, supporting residents or communities at large and not creating these sort of opportunistic situations and periods of, of uncertainty. So it's, you know, all the corporate finance stuff, I'm happy to get into more, but I think it's, you know, having a relationship lender. I know, Andrew, you're just saying that because it's Adam and I sitting here. Um, yes. You guys are the best. You guys were the best. And we, we did close a loan together at the depths of COVID. So uh, no, you guys... You guys were that counterpart in spades. So no, I, I say that in jest. Like I know you actually truly believe that. And I let me. I'm going to soapbox for a real quick sec. It's rare that Adam and I get an opportunity to just talk about finance in general. I'll try to keep this short. But I mean, the reality of relationship with lenders, I think, gets lost at times on operators, owners of real estate. Right? That it becomes a commodity. And I think those that have listened, to Adam and I, historically have heard me say this before. That I mean, yeah, interest rates and proceeds are important, but. At the end of the day, do you have somebody that's willing to work with you and that you trust to be able to sit at a table across from you and try to come to a, a reasonable result? I mean, sometimes I think people forget, you know, lenders are taking very, very, very little return, right? Like interest rates at certain periods in the last 18 months were one and a half percent, two percent, right? So we're lending out hundreds and billions of dollars and returning, you know, let's call it a weighted average of two and a half percent. It's not a huge return business. So therefore, it's very, very low risk business. And so in those contracts that lenders have, and this is just across the board, there's a lot of language that protects us. There's indemnification language and you know recourse language. And often there are demand loans in the event that there's any kind of tribulation or trials going on within the marketplace. We can just call the money back because again, I'm making 2% money. Like it's, I'm not taking any risk out there, right? It's really on the borrower. And not that we would do that, but this is the story that I wanted to tell. And it always resonates with me. And I think it's just really interesting. This is back in the 90s, of course, the last catastrophic real estate event that we've had. And knock on wood, we've never seen anything like that again. 
Uh, and this was a borrower. He, he said the world was ending. Real estate was blowing up all over the country. And a bank, a major institution, called in all of their borrowers, called them into a boardroom. This is, you know, the 90s before Teams and, and Zoom. I just said, okay, you guys have 30 days to pay us back. Everybody, you must pay us back immediately. And then as, as all of the borrowers were walking out the room thinking, oh my God, how am I going to come up with all this money? They go, hey, psh, you know, I'm not name, name his name. Come back here. You've been so good to us. You've been such a great client. Don't worry about it. You can keep your loans, right? And that was just a guy that had taken above and beyond to make sure that he had a strong relationship with his lender. Now, I think that you know, back in the 90s, it was probably a little bit different than today, but it was really interesting, Andrew, for you to pick on that as, a, as an important topic. As lenders, and Adam and I eat, sleep, breathe this every day, when we start adjudicating a loan, first question is, who is it? It's not where is it, it's not what is it, it's who is it? Who is the person, right? Who are the borrowers? What's our relationship with them? How strong are they, right? Are they easy to deal with? Do they understand the relationship? So I'll get off my soapbox now, but I think that's really interesting that that's kind of the, the point that you went to. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I started in this business in 2006. And so I got a front row seat to, uh, and I was working for Heinz over in Europe at the time during the GFC. And, it, you know, it was, it was Heinz, Texas-based developer, operates in, you know, 27 countries around the world and got to see the behavior of different lenders on countless projects. That was really interesting to see, you know, where having partnership mattered. We had loans with Russian banks versus, you know, the relationship lender down the street. I mean, you can imagine how some of these things played out. So no, that was a good early lesson in my career and credit where credit's due. I mean, people on this call had a, you know, one of these during during the last year and closing took longer than I think we all thought, not not because of First National, but um, you know, you guys were certainly creative and helped, you know, get us to where we needed to be. And, you know, we're a great partner. So it it, it does matter and we'll we'll never go for the cheapest cost of capital and, you know, not do who our, who our partner is. There's a lot of nice things being said about uh, Canadian lenders, and I, I don't want to steer this conversation uh, any other way, but you have worked It's because the, mar- the market has been, <laughs> the market's been good. Come on. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you've seen in finance in other real estate markets outside of Canada that you'd want to see used in the Canadian market that would make your job easier? How about revolver loans? We don't do a lot of those in Canada. That's true. We're a pretty institutional borrower here. I think, you know, we don't lever up. We, you know, typically work with, you know, money center banks or Schedule A banks. And, and you know, we don't look for incredibly creative situations. And look, I think, you know, there's a lot of capable investors and borrowers and stable capital partners in the system. And I think if people wanted creative financing solutions, they could call some of the relationship lenders and probably get something put together. I mean, I think, I don't mean to not answer the question, but I, you know, I think, you know, we have a high quality, like functional market up here. I, I don't, I don't think there's meaningful gaps. I think markets like the U.S., obviously a, more of a non-recourse model, everything tends to get securitized versus held on balance sheets. So you've got these investment grade cutoffs and a more prolific use of MES, but you know, that has unintended consequences too. So you know, all in all, our, our market is, is you know, healthy and, and considerate here. I mean, that's funny you mentioned that. I'll just date stamp it. It's Tuesday the 16th. If you're not watching live and you're listening to this recorded at some date in the future, RBC and BMO just came out with another CMBS issuance. Like it's 500 and something million dollars. The first one in 20 something months. So, I mean, just think about, I think in the US, they've got one every couple of weeks, right? And this is the first one we've done in a couple of years. Even, I mean, they've been doing it through COVID and We've had a hard time doing it pre-COVID, let alone you know during COVID or after. And 
So it just speaks to the fact that we just really don't have that market here. I mean, let's stick conventionally then, Andrew, kind of touched on the RCFI program. Maybe we'll finish with CMAC construction business, but you know, just talk about your experience on the conventional product market. And I think you, you do some construction business on a conventional basis, therefore uninsured, which is floating over BAs, I, I presume. And what's the attraction to that versus sort of a CMHC insured construction financing? You know, I think it in many ways comes very squarely back to my previous comments about a partner. I think CMHC is a, is a great partner, but, you know, they also have a pretty rigid approach to their underwriting ongoing, you know, if there's any, you know, loan resizing required based on, you know, something changes in the project scope, you know, no matter how immaterial, you know, it's just a more bureaucratic process. And I think that should be expected, right? You're, you're borrowing from the Canadian taxpayer, you know, risk is top of mind. And, and I think that comes with a little bit more rigidity and, you know, you benefit from that and lower rate. For us, you know, when we think about construction lending on the, you know, borrowing from Schedule A banks, I mean, you get a, a more flexible partner and you know everything goes great for the first you know 85 to 95% of projects but you know invariably you know at the, at the end we like to joke the last 20% takes 80% of the time you know whether it's again i talked about hst earlier or getting the cmhc timing of the takeout versus rental achievement there's various stars that need to align and i think that when you're working with a you know schedule a bank who's got the loan on balance sheet you know, you can, you know, tour them through the project. They, you know, you might have other work with them. They're, they're focused on clients and customer service and risk and t- kind of taking a holistic view to, to a project and a relationship. You know, during construction, when there's more moving parts, that can be attractive, even though you might be paying a little bit more for it in rate. And for anybody who's not, uh, you know, fully up to speed on your financing options, Andrew did mention uh, rental achievement. That's because the CMHC loans do build construction uh, and term into a, a single loan. And a component of that, of course, is, is rental achievement when you want to uh, to flip the term. Which structure do you prefer then? Because this may be the concluding thoughts here because we're on, of course, you know, CMHC market program here. So with that structure, you have the construction term built into one, whereas conventional, you, of course, can break up the loans. You can just do construction as a standalone and then term as a, as a standalone which do you prefer uh, out of those two structures? You know, look, I think it's all philosophies. For us, on the construction side, our worldview is to typically look at all options and make a decision, but we don't say it needs to be CMHC or it needs to be a Schedule A bank. We, we tend to look at both and then analyze proceeds rate and overlay the flexibility comments that I made as a benefit of you know a Schedule A bank execution. But what is always a, a no-brainer for us is working with uh, CMHC on the PERM side. It's the right program at the right price. And I think that, quite frankly, it was you know, put in place to, to help support the supply of purpose-built rental. And it's, it's an important part of our, you know, what helps us get to the economic outcomes that we need to make sense of this business. So CMHC all the way on the takeout side. Let me just, I mean, I have an opportunity to do some education too, because I know sometimes financing gets lost in all the more exciting parts of the commercial real estate world. Part of the attraction too, as you you mentioned, interest rates, which are, I think at last check, are sort of 70 to 80 basis points below uninsured rates for the, the term out, for the duration of the term. You also get access to higher amortization. 
what's your theory on AM? Like, are you guys, let's just max out, get that cash flow? Because I know you're kind of long-term holders. So is it truly about maximizing cash flow and you'll deal with the refinance at the end of the term? In financing, it's it's tough to look at one thing in isolation. I mean, I think 30 to 50 or 50 year AM at 50% LTV, who, who cares? Like it's pretty low risk. You know, I think as you push up on the leverage profile, you know, hyper AM approach and trying to get that down with, you know, something shorter term on the AM side is, is probably appropriate. So I think it depends. And look, I think you also, if asset values and rents continue to tick up, everybody's money good. And it's, it, these are all sort of mute, conversa- mute conversations. I think, you know, ultimately, it, I think comes down to the real estate, the leverage profile and your risk appetite. I think there's philosophies on it. Andrew, thanks a lot. This is not the first time we've done this with you, but every time I, I always enjoy talking with you. You're an opinionated fellow on the topics of, uh, of apartments. So it, it blends in very nicely with uh, what we do here. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Aaron. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where uh, Adam and I kind of digest the conversation we just had with Andrew Joyner of Tricon. You know, it's always fun for me because I don't, I don't get exposure. I mean, he's, I mean, we didn't actually say it on the recording, but he's your client, right? So you gotta have a good sense of what they're doing and how active they are in the marketplace. It is quite incredible just how much capital they have to deploy and how active they are in the marketplace. Yeah, it's funny because I even mentioned it when we were, you know, in the main part of the interview. But he referenced how tough it is to get sites, but they've been picking off just primo sites across the city for for a couple of years now. So not to say it isn't tough. I mean, you know, that part could still be true, but they have done a great job of securing uh, quite a lot of very large projects. It's, it's very, very impressive. I know they've got a team out there aggressively making it happen, but they've got a number of different parts of their business. We're not going to get into it today because this is probably a whole other topic and likely doesn't even fit into you know the mandate of uh, the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, but they have a very large single family rental business down in the States. And that market has exploded in the last year or two. Uh, a lot of institutional money now pouring into it. In a previous episode, Gary Berman, also Tricon, he, he kind of talked about the volume of homes they're buying. So we will get into it. But yeah, there is there is a very large portion of the business that comes from there. They're well capitalized, got a lot of a lot of units spread across both continents. Yeah. So or sorry, a lot, a lot of units spread across both countries. Yeah, that's why I have two thoughts after that. One, like please go back and and, and listen to that Gary Berman episode, which was probably about a year ago now. He's a um, second generation scion, if you will, of the organization and very, very interesting just the way that they've been able to take this business uh, and grow it into this behemoth. And, and to your point, you know, with the massive US presence where they were really one of the first to really acknowledge that single family rental is actually a very lucrative business model. One thing we did also didn't cover is that, you know, they've just been recently listed on the New York Stock Exchange, I guess about a month ago now. And they've already seen their stock bump. And it looks like, I mean, I, I get these sort of real estate investment trust guidance letters. And there's a lot of analysts suggesting that their stock's going up. Mark Rothschild being one of them. Previous podcast guest. as all. <laughs> yeah, we're getting a lot of that these days. They were <laughs> a lot of crossover now. <laughs> and more interesting, before we move on from the capital aspect, another big one for them was Blackstone investing a couple hundred million dollars into them. One, obviously, it's a, it's a nice... Uh, chunk of change to put into the, the kitty for Tricon, but more importantly, it really shows, you know, approval 
from uh, you know the most sophisticated investment group down in the U.S. Absolutely, I think of course that U.S. exposure and just the success they've had down there has clearly given them a little bit more of a wider net to catch dollars. And that's where kind of where I was going next is that he indicated what did he say it was buy build. Hold by, by, build, by build operate. Yeah. By build operate. I love that. I love when people can just make it really succinct. And when that is your philosophy, where it is not a buy build merchant seller or you know buy. I know I know they do buy fully built, but it's always with that sort of long term objective, right? It, it is the a holding pattern. So when you have lots of capital coming in, an incredible reputation for execution. And your philosophy is to buy, build, operate. I think it allows you to go long on some parcels of land that others may not have the same patience or availability of patience to think long term, right? That you know, you know what? If this is project number nine in our our priority or project number thirty, I don't know. And you know that delivery of units is a longer term away, but you can be patient with your capital and you can hold on to those that asset longer or carry that that land longer, it just allows you to be a little bit more aggressive in the marketplace. And they, they've clearly found themselves in a, in a really nice sweet spot. Yeah. I mean, it is also, of course, why uh, condo developers have trouble adapting sometimes to the, the, the ideal apartment model, which is buy, build, operate, in this case, buy, build, hold, as you, as you referenced at the start. But yeah, you know, time is kind to apartments, especially if, if you're starting from ground up construction. If you can be patient. Yeah, if you can be patient, it can be very, very lucrative. I think that's part of the challenge with the condo developers, right? Is it's get it, build it, get out quickly because there's the longer you're in there, the greater the risk and the more variability on your returns versus apartment owners, you know, can think just a little bit more patiently. The, the only word I can think of is patience. I just want to clarify one item from our conversation. Andrew did uh, did highlight after that the, the comment on um, the amenity war in, uh, in Canada, being dead is not the case. In Canada, it is still alive and well, partly, I guess, because we do lag behind other markets in that. And Aaron did reference offline the craziest amenity that him or and I have ever heard in any context. And it was from a, an apartment conference a couple of years ago. It was student housing owners from the U.S. coming up here to tell us about the amenity war going on. And it was at a student building with a lazy river and an outdoor movie screen so that, you know, a couple of times a week, you would get into a lazy river and float around I probably assume with a drink in your hand, giving it students and watch a movie on a big outdoor screen, which is kind of unimaginable here. You know, when uh, yeah. when a gym that features more than six machines could be considered a you know a primo amenity in a lot of buildings. Well, and that's a good point because this was in the. I mean, as as everybody's aware, we do we record these live as part of our Informa thinkings or ask the experts, and then they get pushed onto the the, the podcast, and we do these after the fact, uh, real estate form, you know, Q&As. And, and he did specify that it's not that there's, you know, a many more that's dead. It's really just more about who can deliver the most acceptable or appreciated amenities the best, right? Like he, he kind of emphasized gyms are something that every apartment has to have. I would suspect something like rooftop terraces, potentially, you know, availability of office space or where places to work that isn't, you know, in your condo. And then he kind of referenced, you know, then there's some dabbling of, of others that are, you know, bowling alleys and dog runs and our climbing walls as well. Like, yeah, like there's yeah. other sort of more fringe amenities, which, you know, fair may have attracted a certain component of the renter market. But ultimately, there's sort of a core group of amenities. And it's not about just delivering those, but it's delivering those best in class. And I think that was a really in- interesting message for him to, to deliver. Like, that, and that makes that resonates with me. That makes perfect sense. Like, you're right. Like, you can have a bowling alley or a climbing wall, but if you don't have a very good gym, you're probably losing out, right? 
Yeah, I started packing your building full of fanatical bowlers might be uh, might be a bit of a task. It's an interesting uh, lease-up model. Your repairs and maintenance numbers are going up. The bowling balls being thrown around, right? <laughs> well, I think I think that's it. I did enjoy, of course, focusing on both apartments and finance, and you know, can't wait for the next one. There, they're too few and far between for such an amazing topic. <laughs> in, my, in my humble opinion, of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> mine too. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.